And it was that realization of truly knowing I want to live that really set me on the path to a journey of not only physical recovery, but also internal recovery. I think overcoming adversity is one of the most profound and meaningful storylines in the book of our lives. Welcome to Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast, where we talk to experts from around the world about PTSD, financial stress, sleep, mind-body connection, addiction, depression, fitness, and more. You will hear from others who have struggled, overcame obstacles, and continue to thrive. This is where you will learn the tools and resources you need to have a healthy mind and a healthy life. Welcome everyone to Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Gallagher, and today we're sitting down with Deanne Wandler-Jokovic. She's a former university executive who suffered from chronic stress and executive burnout, which eventually led to an attempt to die by suicide by shooting herself in the head on her 52nd birthday. We're going to talk about her background and her story, how she became a certified brain-based coach, how we can identify individual stress and anxiety triggers, and what are some short and long-term strategies for harnessing negative thought patterns and building resilience. We'll also go over a mental health safety plan, a healthy mind platter, and self-care, things that we can implement every day to help us better take care of ourselves. I can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode. It's truly inspiring. Deanne is resilient, impactful, and just a wonderful person. And you guys are really going to enjoy this. So without further ado, I give you Deanne Wandler-Jokovic. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. As you know, the goal of this is to just kind of help people live a healthier life mentally. Any tips, tricks, opinions, stories, whatever that I can get across to people that can kind of say, well, that sounds like me, or I'm going through that, or I know someone, or whatever it is. So I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, sit down and talk. Uh, No, I appreciate you having me. So let's really, let's just get into it. Let's talk about your story. First off, it's unbelievable. And I think people will be impacted by it. And it's very inspiring. Yeah. So my story is one of suicide survival. And I think what makes my story a little unique and the reason why I really feel inclined to come forward and share it with people. I think there's a misnomer with depression and suicide that people think there needs to be some pre-existing mental illness that's there, like maybe bipolar or, you know, schizophrenia or something like that. I did not have that. What, what I suffered from instead is I was a university executive. I'd been in higher education for over 17 years. I was a single mom. And what I suffered from was just chronic stress. And over an extended period of time, stress went from chronic stress, from chronic stress to anxiety, from anxiety to situational depression, and then left untreated, I progressed into clinical depression and major depressive disorder. Now, this took place over a 10-year period of time. So when you look at it from that perspective, 
you know, my family, when they found out, they were like, oh my God, what happened? We never knew there was an issue because they were seeing it instantaneous. You know, I just talked to him that day on my birthday. And then later that evening, I took a gun and tried to die by suicide by placing it under my chin and pulling the trigger. So I was a highly functional depressive. I was working, I was smiling, I was highly engaged. No one knew what was going on. But internally, this had been a progression of over 10 years. And so when we talk about resilience, typically, you know, we can bounce back from life's challenges and, you know, go back to that homeostasis of normality, of resilience. But when we're hit with chronic stress, it's really hard to get back to that normal level of homeostasis. And instead, when it's chronic and your systems are firing, you know, continually like that over years, that resistance level lowers. And so what I kind of liken it and use the terminology of new normal. After every major event that transpired, I would handle it, deal with it, but I never fully rebounded to normal homeostasis of resilience. And instead, I was lower than the baseline. And with each major event thereafter, that new normal baseline of resilience continued to decline. So to everyone else, what seemed immediate was a very gradual process for me. At the time I hit the point of trying to take my life by suicide, that gap between that new normal of resilience where I was versus a healthy normal of resilience was huge. And just to kind of give you a high, very quick level of things that I experienced over that 10-year period of time, I was single mom, so primary breadwinner, multiple relocations, new jobs, promotion, Hurricane Katrina. Then I got into a coup d'etat with my employer and got fired. And when I got fired, it was during the the height, well, not the height, but during the decline of the, the real estate market. So I bought at the height, tried to sell when it was in the decline and I couldn't sell the house. And I was earning very good money, six figures as you know, university executive and I couldn't hold on to my house. So I ended up losing my house and in the process I lost all of my savings uh, that I had worked my whole life for. Relocation to Virginia, new relationship and you know, I transitioned into another job which was maybe half the salary and half the responsibilities that I had had before. And in that process, I felt like I had lost both my personal and professional identities. And just when you look at that aggregate of that 10-year period of time and some of those very major life events that had happened, it just had an impact on me to the point that I was in such a toxic and negative place that I couldn't see my way out of it. And that was the option that I chose. Wow. That was a 10-year experience for you. And that it's important to point out to people too, because like you had, it seemed like, I guess, everything, right? You had a steady job. You're making six figures. You, by sounds of you, have a support system around you, but you're just suffering. Right. And it was a chronic stress. And I think that's what I bring to the conversation for people and why I really stress the importance of self-care and monitoring your stress because this for me was not, you know, one day fine, the next day not. This leaves everyone susceptible if they're not being mindful and aware of their own mental health and well-being. 
the stress is just, I mean, it's everywhere, right? And it's how we, and, but the key, like you're saying, is how we deal with it. So you're now a brain-based coach? That is correct. Is that what you're doing now? So can you explain that to me? Because I'm not 100% sure or familiar with that. I'm sure maybe a lot of people aren't. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So coaching has emerged from a synthesis of many fields, including training, adult learning, consulting, the human potential movement, and psychology. And each of those fields have their own models and approaches to coaching. But what's interesting is that the various schools of thought agree on very little, with the exception that coaching works and that more of it should be done. So because of my professional academic background, I tend to be very evidence-based. And what's unique about brain-based coaching, which I'll just refer to as BBC, it's an approach rooted in contemporary neuroscience, which is the scientific study of the brain and the rest of the nervous system. And by using these latest insights into how the brain works, BBC facilitates positive change by first improving the thinking. And it does this by creating an environment conducive to new insights, creating the space to think deeply about the topics that matter most to you and in the way that is most appropriate for you and your brain. And as a result, break out of the deeply hardwired autopilot, our brains tend to favor and move into more of the conscious thought and deliberate action, embedding new and positive habits to achieve long-lasting change. That's really neat. It's super interesting. So, uh, and I guess it kind of gets people to really focus on the now, right? Stop worrying kind of mentality. It does. You know, standard coaching has you focusing a lot on the problem. And what happens if you don't solve the problem? And when you do that, you're not forward thinking you're thinking about the problem, which actually kind of sticks you in that negative thought pattern. And instead, BBC really uses the neuroscience of trying to create new thought patterns, avoiding the problem and working towards solution instead, using your brain patterns and identifying where those negative thought patterns exist for you, and then reframing them and creating new habits over time because it is a process over time so that they actually really stick and they're long lasting. So with that, then you can identify individual stresses and anxiety triggers in people? Well, or how yeah. can we, how can we do that? I guess I should say. Yeah. What I was going to say is I certainly learned to identify mine over time. And I, I think it's best if people identify their own because it's so different and unique for everyone. So one of the things that I suggest, and I really think it's one of the best ways to identify individual stress triggers, is to keep a stress journal. And I know that sounds like, oh my gosh, another journal. It's so journal heavy. But I can't stress how helpful it is. Because when you jot down the things that cause you to become stressed, as well as your body's responses to stress, that's really important. What you'll notice is some of the stressors are external. And that comes from relationship problems, work demands, financial problems, your environment. And when I say environment, some people don't really know what that means. What that means is the input from the world around us. It can be a major source of stress. Consider, in fact, you know, like, how do you react to sudden noises, such as your neighbor's barking dog? 
how do you respond in traffic? And I used to sit four to five hours in uh, Washington, D.C. traffic. <laughs> so I could tell you that was a major pressure for me. How do you respond in crowds and extreme temperatures and stuff like that? Conversely, other triggers originate from within, meaning that there are internal stressors that are self-generated, like fears, uncertainty, lack of control, pessimism, which is a big one. Here's another one, negative self-talk, which is something that I was extremely guilty of, and even your belief system. So you may not even think about how your beliefs shape your experience, but these preset thoughts often set us up for stress. And I'll give you a quick personal example. We're getting ready to host a large family gathering for July 4th. I'm constantly having to reel in my perfectionism <laughs> to better manage my anxiety and stress because I'm really working on trying to create this perfect holiday celebration. So when you look at you know, both the external and the internal stressors, we're constantly being bombarded. So if you keep a journal, you'll learn to recognize the signs and the symptoms of your stress, which is the very first critical step in being armed to take, you know, steps to reduce its harmful effects. And I think in closing, probably what I'd really like to highlight specifically given, you know, what I've gone through is that it also bears worth saying that if you're having a hard time determining what it is that is causing you to feel stressed, you really might want to speak to a medical professional or therapist. Let them know how you're feeling. He or she will ho hopefully be able to help you determine what triggers your stress response and how to hopefully deal with it. As so many people I've talked to, a lot of people mention that journaling piece. I like to write things down. I'm also in, write things down in terms of a journal, but also I'm a big list guy, which can kind of be a negative thing at times because if I don't cross something off my list, and I'm also one of those people perfectionist maybe or just I, I hold myself at a different standard so I get mad at myself if I don't do something the way I should have done something so writing things down and having someone to talk to uh, counseling and stuff is is huge I know I, I love checking in uh, and I, I get I say love because I, I genuinely love talking to people and I genuinely love going to counseling to just see where I'm at do those check-ins even if nothing's bothering me because we all have something which is big to realize and everyone needs to kind of realize that with, uh, with the stuff you're talking about, though, I just quickly am curious, everything you've been through and now you talk about it, what does that do for your mindset? Like, how do you stay in a positive and not, because I guess it'd be hard not to kind of go back to that day that you almost took your life, right? You know, it is a daily practice. Absolutely. This was a really formative experience for me. Um, I will share that in a three-year period of time, I did try to take my life three times. The first two times were by cutting my wrists, and my family was unaware, as well as my colleagues at work, only my fiancé, who is now my husband, knew. And the final attempt, obviously, being the most violent when I, I shot myself. I think partially because of the extreme nature and violence of the event, that really helped trigger a change for me, no pun intended by using that term. I, I will also be honest with you that when I was in the hospital, well, first and foremost, I was cognizant after I did this. So that was a an extraordinarily traumatic experience to be cognizant and aware of what was happening. And I lost consciousness when I was life flighted by helicopter to, you know, the hospital in Washington, DC. So 
the whole recovery was extraordinarily physically painful. But during the first week, I wasn't sure I really wanted to live still. And I think it was because of the extreme extensive pain that I was in. And a week following my initial surgery, I had swelling and leakage from my chin and neck area. And it turned out that I had necrosis happening both at the entrance and the exit point of the the wounds. And, you know, that was out of the forehead. So entrance, chin, exit, forehead. And everyone was worried what's happening in between then. And it was right before I went into that surgery that I had the realization, hey, wait a second, I I actually want to live. I, I was... And, and this came out of the blue. I was actually fearful of going into surgery because I didn't know if I would wake up and come out. And it was that realization of truly knowing I want to live that really set me on the path to a journey of not only physical recovery, but also internal recovery and really trying to identify what were some of the things that I had contributed to my decline mentally and how could I better cope and build resilience and coping strategies and so I became certified in mindfulness meditation I'm almost complete with my yoga teacher training I'm writing a course on trauma-informed mindfulness I became the brain-based coach so you know this has been a very interactive and participatory recovery process for me. And I have found that that mind-body connection, that has been crucial in really incorporating some mindful practices that have helped me on a daily basis. Amazing. And you've mentioned the word resilience a few times. So I just, what are some short-term strategies for for harnessing the, the negative thought patterns and then building the resilience? That obviously that you use, but what what can other people use? Because everyone's going to be different. Very true. So one thing that is consistent, though, inside each and every single one of us lives our inner critic. (laughs) And I call this our cerebral party crasher. (laughs) And they're hard to shake, but you can learn how to manage it with practice. So one of the things that you've already heard me mention is mindfulness. It's a non-judgmental present moment awareness and reduce the occurrence of intrusive thoughts. And essentially, the goal isn't to suppress or repress these unwanted thoughts as they arise, but to accept their place in your mind and make no effort to control, analyze, or change them. Ultimately, what mindfulness does is it creates a space for the cognitive restructuring of how we think and behave, how we think and react, which is perfect for the control of intrusive thoughts and negative thought patterns. Another really helpful approach is meditation and self-compassion you know, practices. But I will also say for a very short-term fix, I'm, I'm especially fond of a breathing technique, which is known as a long exhale pranayama breath, one of the best stress hacks. And it's so simple. Uh, It's basically where you slowly increase your long exhales, where 80% of your breath is an exhale. And it's called the vagal break because it stimulates the vagus nerve. And when you 
exhale slowly, you activate your relaxation response of your parasympathetic nervous system. So it's a way to kind of interrupt that pattern. And essentially, you're using distraction as a mindset and as a tool set. Wow. Meditation. I, I learned about meditation a couple of weeks ago in a course, and I found it. I've actually started doing a couple of things here and there, and it's so beneficial. I highly recommend people look further into that, right? Because you hear the word and you go, I'm not going to sit there by myself and breathe. But it, it really, you know, I mean, so many different forms of it I, I learned. It's not just sitting by yourself and kind of blocking out the world. You can do it in your car, you just, you know, five minutes, an hour, whatever you need. There's so many different ways to do it. Yeah, there, there really is. And a lot of people don't know that there's even walking mindful meditation. So there are several different ways that you can practice in a way that actually fits your lifestyle. Yeah, and that's the, that's the key, right? It's got to fit your lifestyle, right? And, and don't give up until you find something like that that fits what you need. So that's the short term. So what kind of long term strategies can people use? So when it comes to long-term, um, you really need to figure out the root cause of your negative thought patterns and then begin to consciously control your thought life. So to briefly explain the science behind it, a neural pathway is a connection between a number of neurons in different parts of the brain, which are connected by and communicate with synapses. And of course, you know this as an EMT, but maybe not all your readers might know this, because I certainly didn't. The more those certain neurons fire and communicate, the stronger the neural pathway becomes. And every time we think the same thought, and this is really important because it's whether it's a positive or a negative thought, or we act in the same way, we deepen that neural pathway in our brain, which more firmly establishes the habitual thinking or behavior patterns for better or worse. I kind of liken it to if you're in a forest or in the woods and, and you know you get off path and you're trying to find your way back, maybe you start bushwhacking or hacking your way through you know, the forest or the woods to get back to the main path. Essentially what you're doing is you're creating a neural pathway when you do that. And if you keep going back and forth over that new path you created, you're creating a stronger neural pathway. So the downside is that that can also be with negative thought patterns and behaviors. And so if you struggle with chronic negative thinking, which is what I did, the reality is that your brain is literally crafted and shaped by this thought habit of yours. And when you have strong neural pathways formed and established in your brain, it's going to feel and it's going to be great, so to speak. So I think that, you know, the takeaway with this Approaches. While we can't control the events and circumstances of our lives, we can control our reactions. And that's so important. It's important not to be reactive and instead take that time, which is what mindfulness helps you do. Take that time to slow down and think. And by consciously controlling your thought life, you don't let your thoughts run amok. <laughs> the way I call it, they don't run amok through your mind. But what that means is that you have to learn to engage interactively with every single thought that you have and to analyze it before you decide either to accept it or reject it. You can, through conscious effort, gain control of your thoughts and feelings. And in doing so, you actually can change the programming and chemistry of your brain. And there is a five-step learning process that goes into detail on how to actually successfully 
rewires your brain. It's a fantastic read. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it to you and to your readers. It's Dr. Carolyn Leaf's L-E-A-F book titled Switch on Your Brain. And the takeaway is that whatever you think about most will grow. And it takes around 21 days of new thought cycling for all the necessary neural protein changes to happen in order to create a long-term integrated memory. But this is why it's part of the long-term, because, you know, the long-term approach. Because not only do you have that 21-day cycle it's to, to create that long-term integrated memory, it really takes two to three cycles of those 21 days for that new thought to move into what they call the non-conscious metacognitive level, where it becomes part of our natural internal perception which is a process uh, referred to as automation. So the reason it's long-term is because change is a process. It's not an event. Yeah, and everything you're talking about is such a process. And analyzing your thoughts, I mean, it can do so much for people, right? And even just like the little things like you mentioned, you know, sitting in traffic, that right there, that's a, that can ruin people's whole day. And then that kind of creeps in. They don't even realize it into their work life that day, into their home life. Now, obviously, it might not be the traffic piece, but something there, I guess, triggered them to become upset and because really nothing you can do about it. Like you said, right, you can't, there's certain things you can change and control the controllables. And so analyzing your thoughts, that's, that's amazing. So you mentioned too, it was 10 years of just, I guess, a, a buildup to, unfortunately, that day that took place on your 52nd birthday. So for people listening how can you create that mental health safety plan? So, you know, it's interesting. We prepare a fire safety plan for our house, or we have now, unfortunately, an active shooter plan, you know, safety plan for the workplace. But what about those of us who have experienced symptoms of mental illness? And if, what if we had a way to prepare a first aid kit, so to say, to meet those needs? So essentially, a safety plan is just that. It's a preventative approach to mental health crisis to help people understand their personal red flags indicating they need to seek help. The idea is to develop strategies to keep your worst case scenario at bay. And therefore, I cannot stress this enough, it's so important to be honest about the things you'd actually do if the time comes. Just like so many of us create, you know, New Year's resolutions, but we're not really going to follow through with them. <laughs> and so you don't want a safety plan to be built on fluff. It really has to be very individualized to you and something that you would actually really follow through with. In less dire situations, coping skills might be enough. But for the times, you know, when someone needs more, let's talk about what a, a safety plan should include. So first and foremost, warning signs, you know, warning signs for you as an individual. What are some of the thoughts that are, you know, risky thoughts for you? What are some of the mood indicators, the situations maybe that you find yourself in trigger something for you? What behaviors are indicators that a crisis may be developing. And it really is important. Again, we talked about writing. You have to write this down. This isn't a mental you know, note that you're making of your mental health plan. This has to be pen to paper. 
So you write down these warning signs for you that a crisis may be developing. And you also need to identify existing coping strategies that have worked for you in the past. So, you know, relaxation techniques or physical activity, because exercise is huge. So maybe that helps you. But the third thing that you should include is social settings that provide distractions. Maybe that's for you going to the movies. Maybe it's going to the mall. Who knows? But we all respond to different social settings that have a positive effect on us. Maybe it's going to the park. The fourth thing it should include is identify people in your support system. So family members, colleagues, friends, and their phone numbers. Also then the next step, the fifth one would be to identify professionals or agencies you can contact during a crisis, such as your clinician, local urgent care services, mental health provider, or a mental health crisis team, or suicide prevention line. All these things should be listed. The next step I would include is steps to make your environment safe. So in other words, if you're very stressed and you might be heading toward a crisis, if you respond by medicating by drinking or taking pills, you want to remove that from your environment. So it's important to know how do you self-medicate instead of cope and how to create that environment for you that's safe. I would also include, and this is not just for mental health, I think it's important though, to include a statement similar to, and I learned this when I was in therapy after I went to the psych ward for a little over a week when I got discharged, is to include a statement similar to, the one thing that is most important and worth living is blank. Because when we're in a state of despair, we don't have the capacity to think about these things. We don't have the capacity to emotionally connect to them. So it's so helpful to have that statement or reminder of what what is important in your life and why you want to live. And then include a list of any current medications you're on and dosages because, you know, God forbid, if something does happen, that needs to be readily available. And also listing treatments that have been used in the past, like if you use cognitive behavioral therapy or some of the other things that have worked for you. And although we are talking specifically mental health safety plan, a safety plan, it can be an extremely preventative measure extended to many different types of conditions, you know, including suicide ideation, non-lethal self-harm, even eating disorders, or if you're in an unhealthy relationship, essentially any conditions where having specific steps or distractions would be in order. That's awesome. And a lot of these steps, I I wrote a bunch of them down. It's basically like nine, 10 steps. I hope people implement this. And, you know, I think a lot of people will go, I don't know if I need this because I'm fine or whatever, but the, the really, we're not all fine. And as we said, you were working in six-figure income and had your, you know, what seemed to have your life together. And then fast forward 10 years down the road. And, you know, again, unfortunately, you try to take your own life. But if people put this in place, maybe they can stop that last step of going down that path of taking their own life or whatever. And you mentioned too, like positive coping strategies. And to me, that is so important because that also ties in with, you mentioned safe environment, because if you don't have those coping strategies, 
you might think that alcohol or drugs is really just your way of coping. You might not be an alcoholic or whatever, but that particular day you go, I'm stressed and I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to take out my anger and issues with alcohol. But if you have those coping strategies, then that safe environment of a bar really won't exist, right? It could be instead I've got a coping strategy and go for a walk today, right? And that kind of resonates with me because that's what I do from and have done was alcohol was my thing. My father passed away when I was 16 years old and I didn't deal with it till I'm 35 now. I didn't deal with it till my early 30s. But it was always, you know, Thursday to Sunday with the hockey team, with the boys, let's go out and have fun. And then I finally got that under control, but it wasn't, it took a toll on my personal life, my marriage and everything. And I still have those glimpses of, okay, I got it under control now. And, you know, I'll go a year or six months of just having a social drink. And then all of a sudden there's one day where I'm like, all right, I'm going to get drunk. I'm still working on, but why am I doing that? You know, all those things. And that's where those coping strategies come into play, I think. We're all guilty of it. And I have no problem talking about it, no problem admitting it. It's what this whole podcast is about, is trying to figure out how we can adjust and adapt and change our mindset, really. Right. And that safety plan doesn't need to be, you know, depending on the situation or the condition that you're trying to build a safety plan for, because we've talked it can be for other things, even just eating disorders. It doesn't need to be as extensive. This is an ideal one if you are, you know, really troubled. But I'll give you an example for myself. There were signs all along. I just never really paid attention. So after Katrina, I became a, a workaholic. I worked 14 hours. I was first in at seven in the morning. There were times I actually stayed until one o'clock in the morning. 10 o'clock was not rare for me. And then I would meet up with some friends and have a couple drinks and maybe pop a couple almonds for dinner. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I avoided things in my life. I didn't pay my tax two years, didn't register my vehicle because it was almost as though I couldn't, there was only so much I could handle. And there was almost a disassociation from other things that created more stress for me. And so my coping was just ignoring it. And had I known, had I actually really been paying attention, that I had a safety plan that, that identified, you know, these were my ways of, of negative coping, I would have seen a trend. I would have seen a problem. Other people did. And they're like, I can't believe you haven't paid your taxes yet. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. I'll get to it. It wasn't like I had to pay taxes. I just simply had to file them. And, you know, that was just something that I avoided. Yeah, I've never really thought of it in that light, the safety plan. I think that's it's awesome advice because, we all, like, like I said, we all need it. Or And everyone that's going to is going to think of probably someone that could, could probably use this, but the truth is, too, we, we all could, right? We are so quick to go, oh, did you see so-and-so? They're doing this. Well, let's take a step back, too, and look at ourselves because we could be passing the buck on to so-and-so when really we also have a problem as well that we need to get under control, whatever it is. So with that safety plan as well, self-care gets talked about a lot, and we mentioned it a few times. So what kind of things could we put in our everyday life for self-care? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are out there, and there are several schools of thought. But I will say that there is a holistic and balanced approach that I subscribe to. It's called the Healthy Mind Platter, which has seven daily essential mental activities necessary for optimum mental health. 
So, you know, you'll hear a lot of people that just say, avoid seeing crisis as an insurmountable problem. Take care of yourself. Remain hopeful. Those are all good, you know, good and well. But I tend to go for something, again, that I think is a little more solid and foundational. And so with this, it was created by Dan Siegel and David Rock, who are two leaders in neuroscience work. And these seven daily activities make up a full set of what you would call mental nutrients that your brain and relationships need to function at their best. Similar to the food pyramid, by engaging every day in these servings, per se, you promote integration in your life and enable your brain to coordinate and balance its activities, which is so important. So these essential mental activities strengthen your brain's internal connections and your connections with other people in the world around you. So as a result of varying the focus of attention with the spectrum of mental activities, we actually give the brain lots of opportunities to develop in different ways. One way, I guess, to use the platter idea is to map out an average day and see what amounts of time you spend in each essential mental activity, so like a pie chart. And like a balanced diet, there are many combinations that can work well. Point is to become aware of the full spectrum of essential mental activities as well as essential nutrients and make sure that at least every day we are bringing in the right ingredients, mental health, you know, ingredients into our mental diet, even if it's just for a little time. So if you have a minute, I'll just kind of go over very quickly what they are. Yeah. Okay. So the seven neurocognitive, that's a big word, is neurocognitive (laughs) activities that nurture the mind are focus. So first and foremost, the central component of a healthy mind platter for those concerned not just with brain health, but also performance is undoubtedly focused time. The time we're able to focus, stay focused, and refocus efficiently and effectively, meaning that we're focusing on tasks in a goal-oriented way, challenges that make deep connections in the brain. And that can be done through work, through hobbies, and things like that. The next one is playtime. And as adults, we forget about that. We always think that's for children. But playtime is important for everyone, irrespective of your age. It actually enhances the capacity to innovate, adapt, and master changing circumstances. It's not just an escape. It helps us integrate and reconcile different or contradictory circumstances, and oftentimes through play, believe it or not, it can show us a way out of our problem. The third one is connecting time, and and we have heard that. That's very common. When we connect with other people, we take the time to appreciate our connection to the natural world around us, and we actually activate and reinforce the brain's relational circuitry. The fourth one would be physical exercise. (laughs) (laughs) So exercise is an activity that if practiced on a regular basis, and I know you know this because you're a big proponent of exercise, it activates molecular and cellular cascades that support and maintain brain plasticity. So not only does it induce the expression of genes associated with plasticity, it promotes 
brain vascularization, the blood flow to the brain, and neurogenesis, which means cells reforming and regenerating. So that's so important. Time in is another one. And I know a lot of people are like, time in, what's that mean? (laughs) But it really means, and we've talked about this reflection, attunement, mindfulness. When we take the time to quietly reflect internally, focusing focusing on sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts, we help better integrate the brain. Then we also have downtime. So I'm just trying to chart this out. So I hope you visualize this as that pie chart. Yeah. So downtime, meaning when we're non-focused, we don't have any specific goal in mind and we let our mind wander, simply relax. And that could be, you know, like your lazy Sunday. You really don't have any goal or agenda in mind. You're just there. You're just kind of being that actually helps the brain recharge and generate new insights. And then last but not least in the the last slice of pie per se is sleep time. When we give the brain the rest it needs, we consolidate learning and we recover from the experiences of the day. So, you know, although research is needed, more research is needed to understand which combinations are needed and in what order uh, proportion and relationship to produce the optimal levels of creativity, health, and performance. The approach of the, the mind platter, like the food pyramid, it can be used as a simple visual framework to promote and increase the awareness of mental health in our daily lives. So if you notice that you know it's a week and you have an area of the pie that you're not paying much attention to, that's an area of deficiency that you need to maybe rethink and try to figure out ways that you can start to incorporate little bits of that ideally in your daily life. And then over time, as you do your own personal standard or, you know, individualization, you'll identify how much time in each area is needed. But it is just like the food pyramid. You need a little from each area in order to have that balance and that healthy mindset. That's amazing advice, the mind platter. I've never heard that, but these seven steps make perfect sense to me at least. And I think they'll make sense to a lot of people. So hopefully people take the time to actually look deeper into that. That's a perfect way to end things. But I do have actually one final question I'd like to ask everybody. At what moment of adversity are you most grateful for today? So it's interesting how as a society, we have no problem cherishing the the positive moments that have directly brought us happiness or success. But to your point, the moments when we're struggling and when negative moments occur, the feelings of pain, sadness, or anger can sometimes contaminate the way we feel about everything in our lives as I let it happen to me. That doesn't mean we have to linger on our sadness or even less that we shouldn't learn from the inevitable adversity. These moments can either catapult us to new heights or beat us down. And it's really kind of based on how we choose to interpret them and respond. So for me, in my case, I'm most grateful for my lived experience. It has been an incredibly transformational experience and has proven to be, in my case, I believe, the the greatest opportunity to learn and grow as a person. And 
you know, I think that there's value when, and I really appreciate what you're doing here with your show, Ryan, because I think there's value when we share our own stories of adversity, because instead of hiding our fears, failures, and vulnerabilities, other people need to know that they're not alone in their struggle for meaning. Um, there is no shame in adversity. And in fact, I think overcoming adversity is one of the most profound and meaningful storylines in the book of our lives. Wow. I love it. Inspiring. And life is hard, but we can make it a little bit easier on ourselves, And that's kind of what I'm trying to speak to in terms of the Mental Edge uh, Lifestyle podcast, because it doesn't have to be hard all the time and control the controllables and then the mind platter stuff. Everything you're talking about is absolutely fantastic. So I appreciate you. You're inspiring and your resiliency is incredible. And I am genuinely grateful I got the time to talk to you today. And I think people are going to absolutely love this. So thank you again so much. Where can we find you uh, social media wise? People want to get a hold of you, read, look at some of your stuff, whatever. Yeah, sure. I'm on everything. (laughs) <laughs> I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. With my Instagram and Facebook, it's my full name, which is a mouthful. It's Deanne Wandler Vukovic. And under LinkedIn and Twitter, it is my maiden name of Deanne Wandler. And then I have my own website, of course, when it comes to speaking and consulting about mental health, mental health in the workplace, suicide prevention. And that is DeanneWandler.com. And then last but not least, I told you I was everywhere. (laughs) Um, I have an online university that is getting ready to go live within the next 30 days. And it's called livewelluniversity.org. And if anyone's interested, feel free to sign up on the landing page. And what that does is it just puts you on the list so that when the university goes live, I can share with them. And some of the courses that will be available are mindfulness for type A personalities. (laughs) And that's kind of like I was, because like you said earlier, you can't just for some people, just a thought of sitting and thinking or, or cultivating these thoughtful practices. If you're type A, that's hard to even conceptualize. So there's that. There's also a trauma-informed mindfulness course coming out, a resilience course, and then talking about all this neuroplasticity. There's a rebrain boot camp that's going to be coming out that really gets into the weeds about this and helps people along their journey. Amazing. I'm gonna, I'll put all that obviously in the show notes so people can just quickly reference it because there's a lot of info at the end there. So I again, thank you so much. You're the best. And I hope we can chat again because I'm hoping this uh, podcast is going to be a long-term thing. So, Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of guests lined up and it's, you're inviting subjects and topics who, that I think are very meaningful to our society now. And I really appreciate what you're doing because it, it's, it is running a podcast. It's hard work and time yeah. consuming, but kudos to you because it's a needed platform. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. All the best. That's it for me on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Deanne Wandler Jokovic. Thank you for joining us today on the Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. If you know someone who can benefit from being part of our community, share this episode with them so they too can continue to grow and sharpen their mental edge. 
never miss an episode by subscribing to the show. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to listen. We would love to hear from you. Connect with us at mentaledge.ca. And until next time, remember, healthy mind, healthy life.